Today, we're going to continue in our study of Matthew. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 14. And today we're going to consider verses 13 to 21. We decided that uh, moving on in Matthew was a better idea than me preaching a standalone or starting a series. Uh, It's already going to be, I don't know, 2013 or something till we're finished with Matthew. Uh, So we'll, we'll continue to move along in Matthew and um, consider these verses. In these verses, we're going to find ourselves in a story that we're much more at home with than last week's. Uh, last week, Adam reintroduced us to where we are in Matthew, since we've been away for so long, uh, before plunging into really a difficult account of John the Baptist's beheading. Uh, we move from that bizarre and seemingly distant story, and now we're going to move to a miracle we are so familiar with, the feeding of the 5,000. But Our need this morning is the same in this passage as it was last week. What we need to do is hear God speak to us from these familiar words. What we need this morning is to see Jesus for who he really is. And we need to worship before his glorious greatness. Knowing Jesus rightly will revolutionize how we live. And rejecting him will condemn us to die. You see, a central theme in this whole section of Matthew is the rejection of the real Jesus. Rejection is on Matthew's mind. It is in this context. And the feeding of the 5,000 happens in the context of rejection. Rejection is no fun. None of us enjoy rejection. It doesn't matter if it's being picked last for the recess kickball team or getting dumped by a girlfriend or boyfriend or being denied a promotion, no one likes to be rejected. And when we get rejected, we like to think that our rejection is because our talents are unseen, or our potential was unappreciated, or our worth was just unnoticed. And if, just, if they just knew me better, they wouldn't reject me like this. Uh, the rejection of Jesus was quite unlike ours, though, and it's so for multiple reasons. First, Jesus was not rejected because he was unseen or unknown. He was not rejected because no one grasped his plan. Those who rejected Jesus didn't just need to spend a little more time with him to get to know him better and see what he was really like. They had full opportunity to see Jesus as he really was. It wasn't because he failed to put his character and his power on display. No, Jesus was rejected precisely because of who he was. And that is the message that Matthew brings to us in this section Countless Israelites, just like Herod, heard of and even experienced the power of Jesus, yet chose to turn away from him. And we're in no less danger today if we don't understand him rightly. A second reason the rejection of Jesus is not nearly so similar to ours is that it's not as trivial as a broken heart or a foiled job opportunity. Rejection of Jesus is eternally fatal. It is condemning. Rejection of Jesus is to cut off the compassionate grace of God and instead opt for his condemning wrath. To reject Jesus is to reject God and any hope of eternal rest or earthly peace. Rejection of Jesus is also tragically sad. It's tragically sad, right? When Kathy's sister dumped me when we were going out in high school for those couple weeks, it wasn't tragically sad, all right? It was in the moment. It it felt bad. You don't want to be rejected. But rejection of Jesus is not nearly so trivial. 
when we see Jesus' character and power on repeated display, and we're going to do it again in this passage, we realize who it was that was despised and rejected by men. And if we understand who it was that was despised and rejected by men, then there should be a mournful note of sadness that joins this noise of rejection. We measure rejection by the worth of the person who is rejected. And in this case, the only person of infinite worth was repeatedly, decidedly rejected. Because a rejected Jesus is the focus of Matthew in this section, it needs to be ours this morning too. This morning, we have a goal in this very familiar miracle. And our goal should be to know and worship the real Jesus. Here's the big idea for us from this passage. Bow before the divine character and power of Jesus Christ, the Lord. The big idea, bow before the divine character and power of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's read this paragraph, and we're going to begin in verse number 13. Matthew 14, beginning in verse number 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Right? This is the word of the Lord for us to consider today. Now, this section in Matthew uh, chapter 14 began with a really disturbing account of John's death. But it's quickly moving on to focus on the character and power of Jesus. One commentator uh, described it like this. I thought it was kind of humorous. Uh, we've moved from a story about a lavish but degenerate feast to a simpler menu with a more wholesome atmosphere. All right? The feeding of the 5,000, this miracle, it is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that's found in all four of the Gospels. It's the only one. So we do well to consider it carefully. The main point for recording this incredible miracle is to lead us to bow before the divine character and power of Jesus Christ, the Lord. And we'll develop that idea with just two main points today. First, the rejected king has unreserved compassion. And secondly, the rejected king has unrestricted power. So let's begin by considering that the rejected king has unreserved compassion. We read in verse number 13, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So here's the scene. As soon as Jesus hears this, he splits for a desolate place. But we need to understand, however, what is the this that Jesus heard? What is it that Jesus heard that led to his retreat? Because we have a couple different options. Did Jesus hear that John the Baptist was beheaded? Or did Jesus hear that Herod was confusing Jesus with John? You see the two choices? Because on the one hand, the close context might make you think that 
We just heard about John the Baptist being beheaded. It says in verse number 12, his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. All right. So as we're reading this, we might say, oh, it, it sounds like John the Baptist has just been beheaded. His disciples came and told him. And now Jesus is going to withdraw. Um, after all, he did the exact same thing when he heard that John had been imprisoned all the way back in Matthew 4.12. Something bad happened to John and Jesus withdrew. All right. So we say, well, that just kind of seems what's going on here. Uh, on the other hand, however, uh, verses 3 to 12 have been an extended flashback. Do you remember that last week when Adam compared it to like a TV episode that they just flash back to? Verses 3 to 12 have been a flashback to something that had happened earlier. So the question is, how long did that flashback go? Are, are we still in flashback mode uh, or is it over? The right answer is that Jesus left when he heard what Herod was saying about him not that John the Baptist was dead. And here's why. First of all, the chronology of, of Jesus' life and ministry would be a complete mess if the feeding of the 5,000 and the verses immediately following it are right after John's death. The timetable would get all thrown off because we do have a timetable that we can accurately put together from all of the Gospels. And that would be clearly contradicted if what's about to happen with the 5,000 is right after John the Baptist is killed. All right? We left Jesus being rejected in Nazareth back in chapter 13, all right? I know that was weeks ago that we studied that together. You're probably not even thinking about chapter 13, but chapter 13 is another one of those reasons that we know that Matthew is focusing on the rejection of Jesus. And in that rejection back in Matthew 13, um, we read that Jesus was rejected in Nazareth. Remember, a prophet doesn't have any honor in his own country. And it's directly connected to that rejection that we begin chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Well, at the time that Jesus was being rejected at Nazareth, Herod heard about him. And Herod joined the rejection by calling him John the Baptist. All right. So Jesus had been in Nazareth and Nazareth was under Herod the Tetrarch's control. It was part of his territory. It's situated a little bit southwest of the Sea of Galilee. I don't know if any of you did this. Maybe you did it last week while Adam was preaching. Um, maybe you did it after the message. Uh, but Adam spent a little bit of time talking about maps. I don't know if that that made any of you curious to flip open your map. Um, but uh, I hope it did. Uh, I, I hope maybe you even did it in the moment. Uh, but if you flipped open a map, you would see that Nazareth is here and the Sea of Galilee is up here. So Nazareth is a little bit southwest and it's under Herod's control. And so when Jesus hears that Herod, who is the ruler of the area he was in, was making comparisons between him and John, he withdraws by boat. All right, where is he gonna go by boat? Well, he's gonna go to the Sea of Galilee. He's going to withdraw to a desolate place. Um, Luke chapter 9 specifically says that it was the region of Bethsaida, which would be the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. So Nazareth's down here, Sea of Galilee's here. Jesus is going all the way up to the northeast corner. Why is that significant? Well, because that was an area that was not under the rule of Herod the Tetrarch. It was under the rule of a different Herod, Herod Philip. All right, it was in his jurisdiction. So what Jesus was doing, and this conclusion that that Jesus was leaving because of what Herod said, helps us figure out why Jesus was withdrawing. What is he doing? Because a lot of people have said, well, he was grieving for John, or maybe he wanted some private time with his disciples. But what Christ has already done in Matthew is established a pattern of avoiding premature confrontation. All right? It doesn't matter if it's from um, the Roman officials or Jewish leaders. Um, Jesus didn't have any confrontation that he didn't want. So he did this exact thing in 1215. He just left the Pharisees behind in Matthew 1215. He's going to do this again in 1521. Nothing good could result from Herod's confusion about Jesus. And Herod's rejection was a threat to Jesus' mission. 
because of Herod's power. And so when Jesus hears about it, he withdraws to a desolate place under a different Herod's rule. So chronology, geography, and Jesus' purpose definitively point us to say, this is what the beginning of this verse means. Now, when Jesus heard that Herod said Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, he withdrew to a desolate place. All right, that's the this. And when we read that he went to a desolate place, we, we shouldn't think about a desert. Um, perhaps you even have a copy of scripture that says desert. Um, but the idea is it's uninhabited. That's desolate. All right, we're going to find out in the other accounts that there's lots of green grass there. All right, so don't have in your mind he's in the middle of sand, he's in the Sahara. He's just in a place where there's not a lot of walled significant cities around he wants to go somewhere private is the idea in fact it says jesus goes there by himself Uh, in this case that doesn't mean he was all alone but rather he's by himself and his own disciples away from the massive crowds again you have to remember where we are matthew 13 the crowds were pressing in on him from every side and jesus wants to get away and so he gets in a boat a boat that he couldn't have even Um, moved by himself. I mean, this is a significant vessel that he would have had to been in with the disciples and he withdraws. Well, we read something then in verse number 13, uh, contrary to his plan to get away to a desolate place. It says, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. The crowds hear that Jesus is moving. Maybe someone saw him um, and they told their neighbor and their neighbor told their neighbor. And eventually the crowds just pour out of the towns around the area And they actually beat Jesus' boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They outrun his boat. And so when he gets to the other side, he pulls up expecting a nice sandy landing. And he's going to have some private time by himself. And instead, there is this mass of a crowd. And here is where we see Jesus' character on display. Here is where we see that the rejected king has unreserved compassion. Look what Matthew tells us. He gets there. He's trying to get away. The crowds are there. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And this word for compassion is a unique and special word. It means that Jesus heart went out to this crowd. It's a strongly emotional word. It's a warm response to a need. There's not really any good single English equivalent, but the ideas of compassion, pity, sympathy, concern, those are all part of this word compassion. But it's not just a feeling, but it's always connected to an action. So for instance, in Matthew 9, 36, we read that Jesus had compassion for the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And so what does he do? Therefore, he orders his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. See, Christ's compassion is always connected to Christ's action. In Matthew 15, 32, Jesus will again have compassion on a hungry crowd of 4,000. Therefore, he's going to do another miracle of provision. In Matthew 20, 34, we're going to read that Jesus has pity, same word, has compassion. And in compassion, he will touch the eyes of two blind believers and give them sight. You see, compassion, Christ's feeling for people, leads him to do something. It leads to action. And this word is unique because it is only used of Jesus Christ. It's never applied to a human outside of a parable that Jesus told. This is a uniquely Christ word. He is compassionate. He is marked. This rejected king is marked by unreserved compassion. Jesus saw this crowd and he was moved to the depths of his being. Christ is not irritated 
that the crowd has interrupted his plan. He doesn't resent their intrusion into his day. He doesn't roll his eyes at, oh man, here are all these needy people. Here we go again. He doesn't inwardly chafe at the unexpected inconvenience. He pours out compassion even when he's interrupted because compassion marks who Jesus really is. Jesus is marked by compassion. This is who the real Jesus is. Now, notice that Matthew, in his typically abbreviated way, he states almost in passing that Jesus healed the sick. Did you notice that? We're reading through here. Okay, went ashore, had compassion on them, healed the sick. Now, when it was evening, and we just zip right on past there, healed the sick. Matthew is not concerned to draw attention to this healing. It's not where his point lies. Uh, We might want to hear all about, you know, who was sick and what kind of sickness did they have and how were they healed? And this is amazing. Uh, Let's talk about the healing. But Matthew just wants us to see that Jesus' compassion led to action. And that action is most powerfully going to be seen in the miraculous provision of food and not the miracle of healing. So the healings, in this case, are not the point. Verse 15 is going to set up for us the problem that will most clearly put Jesus' compassion and power on display. Look at verse number 15, and it says, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. All right, it says when it was evening. It's most likely a reference to what we would think of as late afternoon. And the disciples come to Jesus with an administrative suggestion. Uh, They say, look, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, There are all these people. It's getting late. They're hungry. Nobody wants hungry people um, that are all in a big crowd, and they're not really going to listen anyway. So I know that those of you who are in this room, the closer it gets to noon and then 12.15, and then 12.20, the listing starts going downhill for a lot of reasons, and one of them being food. Uh, They say, hey, these people need some food. And uh, they figure Jesus should shoo the crowds away and scatter to all these villages, all these towns that are elsewhere, and go get some food. But what we're going to see is that Jesus had very different plans from the disciples. In fact, in the next few chapters of Matthew, we're going to keep seeing the disciples misunderstanding Jesus and failing and bumbling, and they're going to do that a lot. And this is another one of those cases where we see the disciples really missing it when it comes to what Christ had in mind. So they say, send them away. But notice the contrast in verse number 16. But Jesus said, in contrast to the disciples' idea who said, get rid of them, send them out. But Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. This is interesting because Jesus says, there's, there's no need. There, there is no reason that they should go away. All right? Now, you need to let that sink in. You need to put yourself in the disciples' shoes and let that sink in. There's no reason that all these people have to go somewhere to get food. I mean, if at that point the disciples were going, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, then imagine how they felt when they got this command that comes in the rest of the verse. You give them something to eat. The you is emphasized. Jesus was, was, was pointing the finger at them. You, and then he commanded them, give them something to eat. All right? If the disciples weren't frustrated by Jesus saying they don't need to go away, at this point they're entirely confused. How in the world did he expect his 12 disciples to give all of these people something to eat? How could he possibly expect that? That's not reasonable. And so in verse number 17, the disciples are going to contradict Jesus. All right, that's what's happening in verse 17. They contradict him. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. All right. Now, what you need to know about that statement in verse number 17, there is actually a, a Greek word in here that's not translated um, that shows that they were 
they were contrasting. It was, it'd be like us saying, but they said, we only have this. Now you get the idea from what they were saying, but there actually is a specific contrast that's going on here between Jesus and his disciples. They're actually specifically rebutting his command. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they say, in contrast to that, contrary to that, we're not going to do that. We have nothing. They start out with a negative. They don't start out with, they say, we have nothing except this little tiny bit. Well, what do they have? We have only five loaves and two fish, right? They're emphasizing the lack and the smallness of what they have, right? Uh, A loaf, uh, a loaf back then, it was part of the staple diet of what they would eat. Uh, You could probably think of it as something like uh, pita bread, something like that. One loaf would have been sufficient for one person, all right? We're not talking an abundance of food here. Um, In in our day today, uh, we have many different kinds of food, all right? We have all kinds of food, and we enjoy all kinds of food. Um, But for them, bread was crucially important, all right? This, This was the kind of daily necessary food they had to have, all right? We don't think about that in terms of, I mean, just in this room, I can only imagine all the restaurants that are represented where people are going to go uh, for lunch, all the things you're going to have at your houses when you go home and have food. But you wouldn't say, well, I'm going to go home and have bread. Well, back then, this is your food. What are you having today? I'm having bread. What did you have yesterday? Bread. What are you having tomorrow? Bread. I mean, this is life. This is, you got to have bread. This is part of the staple, part of the diet. And they said, we, we just have five of these loaves and two fish. All right? We're toting around these two fish. Um, and that's not a whole lot. So the impossibility for the disciples sets the scene for Christ's power to be on display. Because the disciples say, look, this is an impossible scenario. You can't ask us to do this. Um, this is all we got, five loaves and two fish. All right. Um, I, have to, I have to stop here and pause um, because uh, we're looking for meaning in this passage. We're looking for what does this passage mean? And uh, there are people uh, historically that have looked at this passage and they can't get away from the idea that it was only five loaves and two fish. Um, surely that has to mean something, all right? It has to mean something. It was only five loaves and two fish. So five, 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 five. What, what are there five of? There are five books of the law. So Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Somehow we've got to get this connected to the law. And then there's two fish. Um, and they only had two. Well, there's, there's, in the Old Testament, there's Torah, but there's also the prophets in the writings. And so somehow we've got to get this connected to, uh, the point is that they were missing their spiritual food and we've got to connect this to the word, all right? Uh, this is not the point. You know what the point is of, of five loaves and two fish? The point is they don't have enough to go around. That's the point. What, why five? Because that's all they had. Why just two fish? Because that's all there was. And five loaves and two fish are never going to feed 5,000 men plus whatever women or children with them. That's the point, all right? You don't, you don't have to try to find anything else in it. It's just five loaves, two fish. That's all it is. And it's impossible to be feeding all of these people. And so now in verse number 18, Jesus is going to contradict them. And here is where we're going to see that the rejected king has unrestricted power. All right. The disciples have been contradicting Jesus. They're completely unable to see how could they meet the need for so much food. And look what Jesus says. Here's his contrast to them. And he said, or but he said, bring them here to me. All right. The disciples are going, look, Jesus, you're asking something that's impossible This is all we have. It's just a tiny little bit. And Jesus steps in and authoritatively says, bring them here to me. Jesus is about to step in and take control of this situation and put himself on display as the powerful one. We shouldn't miss his amazing power, even though we're so familiar with his miracle. 
we're supposed to notice that Christ and his disciples have been having this little back and forth, uh, send them away. No, I'm not going to send them away. You feed them. We can't feed them. And then Jesus steps in and says, bring me the food. He's going to put his divine power on display. And that's a power that we should bow before in humbled worship. So Jesus takes control in verse number 19. says, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Right? Uh, sit down. Um, sounds good in English, but it doesn't do really good justice to what Jesus actually said. Uh, he, he actually said, I want you to recline. All right? The idea of reclining, the posture that they would eat back then, they, when you hear sit down, I mean, maybe you're thinking, you know, they sat down Indian style or something. They were actually reclining. It was the posture you would use for a banquet. All right, can you imagine this? He, he didn't just say, get off, take the load off your feet and, and plop down. Jesus said, what I want you to do is get ready for a banquet. So you've got all these people, and they're scattered all through this grass, and they're reclining as if for a banquet. Only one problem, nobody has any food. All right? Jesus says, I want you to recline. So they all sit down, and Jesus takes the five loaves, and he takes the two fish. And he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. All right? What is, what is this blessing? What does it mean to say a blessing? Did Jesus bless the food? All right? That's kind of, a, maybe you even say that um, before your meals. Um, we ask you to bless this food. Uh, amen. All right? Um, well, I think it's actually better to understand when it says he said a blessing, you notice there's, it doesn't say what he blessed. You see that? It just said he said a blessing. Um, so, could mean that he blessed the food, but it could also mean that he prayed a, a prayer of thanks and praise to God. So he was blessing not the food, but God. And that's a, that really is, I think, the better understanding because he's looking up, and so it's indicating he's, he's praising God the provider, not consecrating the food itself. Um, besides that, um, the, the synoptics, the other gospels we have, they use a word that cannot have bread as what he blessed. All right, Matthew uses a word that could go either way. But the other writers, they use a word that can only be used um, for a, a spiritual blessing, not a blessing for food. And so he's giving thanksgiving for it. It's a, it's a word that's used for thanksgiving in prayer in places like 1 Corinthians 14. Um, so Jesus is giving a blessing to God, not to the food. Um, here's an example. This is a, a Jewish custom. Uh, this possibly could have been the, the blessing that Jesus gave. They would pray something like this. Um, traditionally blessed art thou O lord our god king of the world who brings forth bread from the earth all right you see who's being blessed there god is being blessed god is being praised and so jesus looks up to heaven he blesses then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds all right i mean we've read we've read these words we know the story and you know, we're just kind of in ho-hum, ho-hum mode. Okay, yeah, he, you know, he breaks these loaves, give them to the disciples, disciples give them to the crowds. I mean, do you realize what's going on here? Uh, there's five little tiny pieces of pita bread. There's two little pickled fish. And there is a crowd of people, and there are disciples taking this food, and they're passing it out, and it's, and it's being handed down the row. And then it's being handed down the next row. And then it's going down the next row. And, and another disciple is over on that side of the hill, and he's giving out his little piece, and it keeps going down the row. And, 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 and John is over there, and, and he's handing his out. And Andrew's over there, and he's handing his out. And Peter, uh, I mean, is he talking the whole time he's doing it? Peter's going, there, I guess there is something for you. I'm far, I'm out. Uh, no, I'm not out. I, I mean, the food just keeps coming. 
I mean, this is amazing. It's so amazing that, that Matthew wants to call your attention to it, and he uses specific words to, to draw our attention to how amazing it was. It says, they all ate and were satisfied. Right? They, they all ate. Matthew doesn't just say they passed out food to the front row, and the front row was like, ah, good seating arrangement for us. No, it says they all ate. Everybody who was sitting there ate. Not only did they eat, it says they were satisfied. Right? Uh, I, I really like uh, this is a very vivid word. I, I like words. I hope you like words too. Uh, this idea of satisfied, it means to have more than enough. And what's really interesting about this word, every word has history, you know? I mean, every word comes from somewhere. And this is a word that originally started out uh, to talk about an enclosure or a pen. That's what it, the word used to mean, satisfied, an enclosure. And then it came to mean an enclosure where you'd put an animal because you want him to get nice and fat because then you're going to have him for lunch. All right, so it came to mean to be fattened up. And so now it gets to the point where this word means to be satisfied. And so a kind of a less elegant way of saying satisfied is saying these people were stuffed. I mean, they were like, they were like a pig that you were about to take to slaughter. I mean, it, they, were, they had everything they wanted. So there was enough for everybody. And it wasn't that everybody just had a little tiny bit. They had enough where they were stuffed. I mean, this is amazing power on display. This power is on display, not just because they all ate and they all were satisfied, but look what else there was. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. I mean, Matthew just keeps pressing the point. This is power on display. This is, this is incredible power. This is unlimited power. This is power so that everybody eats from just these five loaves and two fish. Not only does everybody eat, they all have more than enough and they're satisfied. Not only is everybody satisfied, there's even some left over. Do you get the, you get the point that this is a power that is not being restrained? It's not being limited. Besides that, Matthew wants you to know in verse 21, those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. All right, Matthew says, it was about 5,000, right? No one's sitting there counting, you know, one, two, three, four, up to, up to 5,000, but it was about 5,000. But it was 5, 000, about 5,000 men. Matthew specifically makes the point that was just the men besides the women and the children, all right? So we don't even have a calculation. I mean, I guess things back then were in their nursery system, same as in ours. How you count all those kids running around? I don't, you know, there was a bunch of them. And uh, for whatever reason, they weren't counting the ladies, um, maybe it was because of their culture, and that definitely was a part of the cultural reality back then. Males head of the household, and so they count the males, and they're not counting the ladies. But, I mean, we could be talking upwards of 10,000, 12,000. I mean, if, if these are men and, and most of them are married, that, that's at least a woman for every man. And uh, even if they only have one kid, I mean, we're talking a lot of people. And they all have enough. And that's Matthew's point. These people are fed by the miraculous power of Jesus Christ the Lord. He's someone to worship. He's someone to bow before. He's someone to say, he is amazing. Now, it's tragic that there have been attempts to completely explain away this miracle. And there are some just ludicrous ways people try to explain away what this passage is specifically saying. There's some people that go with the uh, psychological filling route. Uh, there, were, there was food there, and, um, and everyone just felt like they were full. Um, there was lots of good feelings because everyone was happy about the teaching and they just felt like they'd been fed. So there wasn't actually any food that was passed around. They just felt like, man, I, I feel good. Uh, I, I don't need food right now. I feel good. Psychological feeling. Um, 
There's, a, there's another view that became really popular, uh, and I don't know how, how do crazy things become so popular? I have no idea. But uh, there are some people that thought that, that what happened in this miracle uh, is that everybody was convinced to share. You see, what happened was there was this boy, and he came to Jesus with his five loaves and two fish, and Jesus took those loaves, and he in turn give, gave them to everyone and, uh, and people started to notice, man, what a sharing kind thing that is. And, and they say, well, what was actually going on is people had the food. They had just been hoarding it. And they were unwilling to share with their neighbor. And so everyone felt bad. Oh, man, what a good example Jesus is. We should share with the people around us. And so it turned out that there was enough food in the crowd to feed everybody else. And so it wasn't the food actually multiplied. It was that as sharing happened, more people felt more convicted about not sharing. And they, they added their food to the pot. And the more people did that, pretty soon you had enough for everybody to have. What a miracle. All right. Um, what a bunch of baloney. Um, here's, a, here's, a, here's a quote for you that I think we need to get a hold of. If these lifelike narratives, given in such vivid detail by all four Gospels, could be considered to represent mere legends, then the Gospels would nowhere be worthy of confidence. And that is exactly right. If we can't have confidence that Jesus could do this kind of miracle, then you don't have a Jesus to believe in. All right? This is what the Bible says. This is who the real Jesus is. The real Jesus is somebody who has compassion and he has the kind of power that can multiply five little loaves and two fish and give them to everybody that's sitting there. Now, we're not, we don't live in an, in an era of miracle working like this. And I wonder if sometimes we would, we would never say, you know, we would never say that Jesus couldn't do this. But have you ever had those moments of, of questioning or doubt? Like, how, how did that go down? Like, how could that happen? Because I definitely know that that does, not, that does not happen in my house. I mean, the food disappears. It doesn't add. It doesn't multiply. It's gone. Then I have to go get more all the time. Uh, can this really happen? All right? And this is what I mean by saying we should bow before the real Jesus who has divine character and divine power. Because we have to look at a passage like this and a story like this and say, this is the real Jesus. Can I embrace that the Jesus who I say I worship, that I say I follow, that he has this kind of power? Could he really do this? Because this is the real Jesus. As is typical for Matthew's brevity, he doesn't give any crowd reaction. He doesn't say how everybody responded. We get no word on what everyone else thought. We don't find out where people worshiping, were they not? I mean, we'd expect overwhelmed belief or instant worship, but... But Matthew doesn't talk about it at all. And you need to not miss why Matthew doesn't include those details. Matthew wants you to look fully and without distraction on the miracle worker. That's what he wants you to look at. He doesn't want you to look at the crowd and how they're responding. He doesn't want you to, want you to think about what they're doing. He wants you to see Jesus. He wants you to see a Jesus who, who has a compassionate character and he has divine power. And to bow before him and worship and amazement. He wants Jesus, the real Jesus, to be our singular focus in this passage. And the response that Matthew wants to draw in this passage is not rejection, but worship. We should worship this great Jesus. And so that brings us to the so what of our message. So what that Jesus was unreservedly compassionate? So what that his power was not restricted? So what? Our first so what is something I've already suggested, that we ought, to, we ought to be worshiping this amazing Lord. Acceptance and not rejection is the only right response to this kind of character and this kind of power. Who Jesus is and what he can do ought to draw admiration 
and love and praise from all of us. We should bow before this divine character and this power and declare that Jesus is Lord. He really is the one and only Messiah. Quite unlike the crowd of Jesus' day, we should respond in faith and in belief in this one. Now, perhaps you're asking, how could anyone not want this Jesus? I mean, who, who wouldn't want a compassionate, powerful Jesus? Who wouldn't love to have a miracle worker meeting all their needs? This is not all Jesus was. And so those people who only wanted to gain from him ultimately reject him. They did not really want Jesus as he really was. And we need to ask ourselves today, do we want Jesus for what he really is? If you want Jesus today for what he can do for you, instead of being humbled and enthralled and driven to worship by who he really is, you too will ultimately reject him if you just want him for what he can do. You will not like God's wonderful plan for your life if you think it's all about you and your happiness. If that's the kind of Christianity that you signed up for, you will inevitably reject the Jesus who intentionally douses your life in suffering, who calls you to suffer persecution, and who disciplines you relentlessly. It's not, it's not fun to have the demanding Jesus. Right? We prefer the friend that we invite along when it's convenient or the religious Jesus we pick up on our way to church services. But the Jesus who is the real Jesus demands we surrender everything to him, to pick up our cross daily and follow him, to die to ourselves every day. And that Jesus is not nearly so cool or fashionable to us and our culture. It's not fashionable to have the doctrinal Jesus who makes truth claim after truth claim that you must either receive or reject. But to reject this compassionate and powerful one would be the most tragic, destructive choice you could make. We must bow before the divine character and power of this real Jesus. Are you among the rejectors today? Or are you with those bending their wills and bowing face down to worship this true Jesus? The one true Jesus put his character and power on display throughout the three years of his earthly ministry, culminating in his brutal death on a cross. And that cross was simultaneously the best display of compassion and power we could ever know. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died in the place of sinners. Sinners who would stop trusting in their own goodness and trust solely in his sacrifice. He showed his love by taking the sinner's place. He traded his righteousness to them while taking their sins on him. This is the gospel. And he demonstrated his full power by dealing Satan and sin and death a knockout blow. His death was victory as demonstrated by his resurrection from the tomb that we celebrate today as in every Sunday. So are you trusting in this Jesus to save you from your sins? Are you trusting in this Jesus to take God's wrath away from you and give you life forever? If you're not, you're missing the point of the feeding of the 5,000. You're missing the Jesus you should worship. And if that's you today, if you've missed the real Jesus, I would so love to talk with you and tell you embrace the real Jesus, including the one who puts demands on your life including the one who demands that you understand him accurately. 
the crowds, they would reject him because they couldn't handle who Jesus really was. They wanted a, they wanted a political deliverer. They wanted somebody who would give them food. And when it turned out that Jesus demanded righteousness and holiness and belief, they said, that's not for me. Such cannot, should not be our reaction today. So what about those of us who are driven to believe in Jesus the Messiah? How should we live in light of seeing our Lord's compassion and power on display? What, what should this passage do to us? Well, in regard to Jesus' unreserved compassion, we should be convicted to imitate Jesus Christ. I mean, how could people who are so impressed and so trusting in a compassionate Lord not also show compassion to other people? How could our hearts not go out to the crowds all around us? I mean, there are hurting, lost, dying, suffering, sick people all around us. Do do your hearts go out to them? Or are we comfortable and unconcerned because we have health and wealth and, and a nice house? Now, it's at this point that we do need to stop and think carefully about our application. Because since the early 1900s, liberal theology has plagued Christianity by redefining the gospel in terms of social justice and improving bad social conditions. So when we hear about compassion, it's easy to jump to the wrong kind of thinking. There's a whole way of thinking, sometimes it's characterized as the social gospel, that's taken passages just like this one, and it's used them to say that we should, we should be all about social activity. We should try to create a kingdom for Jesus by social action. Right? One writer defined it this way, uh, this thinking sees the great mission of the church, indeed the content of the gospel, to be the freedom of the poor and the oppressed and disadvantaged of the world from cultural and economic and political and religious tyranny. And that kind of thinking is alive and well in our religious culture today. So from a variety of sources, we're repeatedly informed that we should show the compassion of Christ by this social action or that social action, right? So we should send, send shoes to Africa. We should send coats to Russia. We should give a dollar a day to a child in South America. I mean, churches run soup kitchens and homeless shelters and thrift stores. Why? Because they want to show the compassion of Jesus Christ. What's the problem with that? The problem is not in the social action. The problem is not that, we should, that, that people are caring about orphans in Africa. That's not the problem. The problem is in the theological redefinition because the gospel is not showing love to someone. That is not the gospel. The gospel is a message. It's a proclamation. It's not an action. And so the social gospel is an empty counterfeit for the compassion of Christ. And it's a cheap substitute for his power. Right? It's counterfeit because the compassion of Christ was not just physical. His care extended beyond the temporal and it went to the eternal. Jesus' main purpose was not, not to provide people's physical needs. He didn't set up the supernatural soup kitchen and do this feeding of the 5,000 every other week. Right? That's not what he was about. Think about what a failure Jesus was from the modern social gospel perspective. Right? Jesus went to a limited group of people. He only went to the Jews. So instead of showing care to everyone everywhere... He only took his miracles to the Jews, except for the occasional uh, rare Gentile who had exceptional faith, right? He only spent three years doing miraculous things. I mean, Jesus had this miraculous power all his life, and he hoarded it until three years of public ministry. I mean, what is that if you're a social gospel person? And besides that, he invested a huge amount of time into things like doctrine and preachy kinds of stuff like that that took up so much time that he could have been doing nice social activities and healing more people. And what Jesus thought was most important was a cross, not a healing crusade. In fact, John 6.15 specifically says that at the end of this miracle, the crowds wanted to make Jesus the king. And the social gospel says, perfect. We get a miracle working king. 
He's going to throw off the power of Rome. He's going he's to reach out to the poor and the oppressed and downtrodden. And uh, he's going to make their life better. But this is not the real Jesus. You see, Jesus' compassion for the crowds and indeed for us goes beyond our physical needs. Jesus is compassionate enough to tell us that our greatest problem is spiritual and then to rescue us from our sin. So we must not equate social activity as the same thing as the compassion of Jesus. At the same time, we must not divorce compassion from physical expression either. Jesus really did care about physical needs. It just, that wasn't his controlling focus. If we're to imitate Jesus, we must have compassion that leads to action. But that action must also be marked by Jesus' priorities. So what are the kind of priorities that Jesus would have for your compassion today? First of all, have gospel compassion. Right? When you think about compassion, the first thing that comes to your mind ought not be we dug a well for somebody so they could have water. The compassion that we should have on our hearts for the people around us, for the crowds around us, ought to be a gospel compassion. The greatest need of man is not self-help or improvement or a better life now. The greatest need of man is to satisfy the wrath of God that is poured down on him every day until he repents. And that need can only be met through the gospel. All right? And people will only respond to the gospel when they hear the, the gospel. And they're only going to hear the gospel when you actually verbally communicate it to them. Right? Have gospel compassion. What drives us to give the gospel? Well, obedience drives us to give the gospel. But if we had the compassion of Jesus Christ, that too would drive us to share the gospel. If we're going to have Christ's kind of compassion, we'll need to have brotherly compassion. I mean, we, we, we read that. How, how can you say the love of God dwells in you if you see your brother has need and you refuse to help him? How can you say you love God when you can't even love your brother who you can see? And you say, I love God who I can't see. You see? So we need to have brotherly compassion that's actually active and caring. Third, a third thought for you. Have gospel compassion and have brotherly compassion and have intentional compassion. Right? Have intentional compassion. Not all compassion is equal. And not all compassion is the same as Jesus' compassion. I don't know how many of you, how many of you have seen this, uh, but there's a commercial um, with a girl named Sarah McLaughlin, and I don't know how many of you know who that is uh, or like her music. I happen to be one of those who do. Uh, beautiful voice, uh, gorgeous music. And uh, there's this commercial that has her singing with her beautiful voice with beautiful music in the background. And uh, it's, I mean, it just, it's just the music, the tone of voice, just tugging at your heart. And uh, she's talking about the desperate need and the plight and how you can give to make a difference and we need you and they need you. And you can, you can help an animal in need I mean, you can rescue those dogs and you can rescue them. I mean, have you guys ever seen that commercial? It's all about compassion for animals. Now, not all compassion is equal, right? It's not all the same. Not all compassion is the compassion of Jesus Christ. That's an extreme example because you'd say, obviously, compassion for animals is nothing like compassion for people. But not all compassion we show people is the same either, all right? We have to have an intentional compassion that leads us to doing actually meaningful, significant, caring things for others, which includes gospel care. Um, which includes seeing where people genuinely have needs and then, and then bringing the gospel to bear on their life and bringing Christ to bear on their life. All right, have intentional compassion. We have been shown ultimate compassion and we must imitate that compassion. Let's just be sure that we're imitating in its fullness, not just in its physical expression, okay? Last thought for you. I said the social gospel was counterfeit compassion because that's not actually the compassion of Jesus Christ to only care about people's physical needs. It's a fake, it's a fraud. But it's also a cheap substitute for the power of Christ. That's because we can't reduce the power of Christ to our ability to hand out shoes or soup 
That's not the power of Christ. People want to say, I want to, sh- I want to put God's power on display. I want to put Christ's power on display. Do you want to do that? Do you want people to see the power of Jesus Christ? Do you want them to see the compassion of Jesus Christ? Then take them to Matthew 14 and show them. I mean, say, this is who Jesus really is. Show them. This is what the Bible says about the character of Christ. This is what the Bible says about the power of Christ. He's the one I worship. And that worship changes how I live. But don't cheapen or water down Christ's actual divine power by suggesting we're doing the same thing today when we care about the oppressed and the needy. Christ had unlimited power. So, Christian, are you trusting in that Jesus today? Christ has unrestricted power, unrestricted power to save you from your sins. So are you answering the charge of your accused of the devil with the truth of Christ's power for your sin? Are you trusting his power to supply everything that you need? And here again, we're not talking about I I live the healthiest, wealthiest life, but am I actually trusting that Jesus is going to meet everything that is my daily need and whatever he doesn't give me isn't my daily need? That he's powerful enough to give me everything I need to grow in him and glorify God. Right? You're not missing anything to be growing as a Christian. Nothing. He has power for you. He's powerful enough to be your savior. And he's powerful enough to be your Lord. So, believers, let's imitate our Christ with the depth and fullness of our compassion for others. Because Jesus was someone who was marked by unreserved compassion. It flowed from him. And let's trust in his unrestricted power to accomplish his plans. Our Christ, the real Christ, has all power. Imitation and trust are acts of worship. And worship that comes from those who bow before the divine character and the divine power of the real Jesus.